Well, here we are, episode 100 of Standout Life podcast series. And what an incredible feat to reach 100 episodes. When I think about the guests that I've had on this series, the stories that they have shared, the way that they just have shown up uh, as themselves and, and kind of laid themselves bare, it's, it's been an extraordinary ride. And for this 100th episode, I wanted to celebrate with someone closer to home, someone very special to me. In fact, he is the most important person and special person in my life. I sat down with my business partner, my life partner, my husband, Darren Hill. And we talked all things from where his insatiable work ethic comes from, having grown up around a family that was always in business, from his time being an abattoir worker and how that path went from there to where he is now as a trusted advisor and sought-off strategist for Fortune 500 and ASX 200 companies across Australia as well as globally. And in 2018, he was recognised as Educator of the Year. Darren and I have been in business together for over 13 years and the last 10 years in our current business, Pragmatic Thinking. Our business is a behaviour and motivation strategy company. We work with big corporates, driving leadership programs, developing leadership capability and growth and cultural change initiatives. It's fantastic work. It's really varied work. It's hugely creative and massively rewarding. So I start with the question that Darren and I get the most, which is as husband and wife in business together, how do you do it? This is a beautiful conversation. It's quite a long conversation, but there is an amazing reflection and even a spoken word poetry piece right at the end that you won't want to miss. So please enjoy this conversation with the deep thinking and the person who pursues life like no one else that I know, the amazing Darren Hill. So I have had many people request uh, a particular guest on this podcast series, and Darren, you're it. So welcome to the studio. I don't know whether why they're requesting it other than <laughs> morbid fascination to watch you probably tear me apart or or uh, make all. me cry. Or not at all. Well, crying, I'm I'm bang up for. We'll see where that right. see where that goes. I'm glad to uh, be a subject of people's uh, morbid fascination. <laughs> so. But I think there are a few conversations that people are interested in uh we've been in business together for 13 years coming up to nearly 13 years married and two kids and the question on most people's mind is how do you do it when you hear that how do we do it what comes to mind i could go with the classic australian thing of uh, whatever you tell me to do i do it (laughs) But we know that that's not true because I'm, I can be incorrigible at times. So I don't, I'm not very good at being told what to do. I'm sure you'd admit. Um, so I don't know. I think we just, uh, we just figure it out and we've always figured it out. And that's probably a deeply unsatisfying answer for people who go, well, I want the, I want the list or the, the, yeah, the seven steps. Um, but I think we've always just, had a mindset to figure it out, not necessarily with a plan, um, but more just with a sense of belief that we have something good to contribute together. And so as a result, I 
Yeah, it's probably a deeply unsatisfying answer of just figuring it out. Lots of long conversations and and um, just with a, I, I guess a, a mindset towards a belief that we will find the answers if we talk about it long enough. Definitely, uh, yeah, I would agree. It's lots and lots of conversations. You've, um, like I had quite a different connection to business growing up. I had two parents who were both public servants, but you had quite a, a different upbringing and I guess a reality and a connection to what business could be and what a couple could do in business. Are you happy to talk a little bit about what that experience was? Yeah, well, I guess as growing up as a, as a kid, I was always in our family business so and that took shape and form in many different ways because uh, um, there was a time very early on when I think dad did have a job um, and mum had a job but certainly from my earliest memories they owned their own businesses so the earliest one I can remember was that they had a canteen at the local abattoirs in in Gunnada on Camilleroy country um, and uh, us kids had kind of run around out the back there and play on the lawn um, uh, outside the sort of uh, I guess the canteen area um, and then they moved into uh, another business a more stable one I think because at the time the local abattoirs were facing a fair few um, union-based stoppages and as you can imagine it was probably um, you'd get all the food ready for a thousand workers and then all of a sudden they'd stop work uh, for a couple of days and I think uh, in the time the CMFEU uh, or the Australian Meat Workers Union or whichever one it was they they didn't mind having a crack and uh, so I think it was a very difficult business for them to to do well so we ended up uh, taking on a general store in a little town called Carroll, which is halfway between, or kind of halfway between Tamworth and Gunnada, uh, in sort of um, mid northwestern New South Wales, uh, and Mum and Dad took over that in this small town of I don't know probably three hundred people or so, but it was on the on the uh, highway and was a bit of a, a stopping place for um, things. So we had petrol bowsers there and takeaway food and. And it was a general store in that I think that they probably had the post office and it was one of those stores that done everything. So we sold bait for the local fishermen. So that was often my weekends was to go and dig up earthworms or try and get some freshwater prawns out of the river. And um, and yeah, so it was 24-7 kind of uh, business um, because the hours of trade were... Uh, something like six in the morning till eight at night and and so it was a real whole of family thing um, my, me and my brother Mark used to stack the fridges of a night time that was our job uh, uh, we, did you do a better job than him <laughs> oh no we we were a bit of a team like we'd sort of the 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 drinks would be stashed out the back in the shed and we'd have to take a milk crate out and fill it up and bring it back in and and restack the the shelves, but um, the slave labour that my mother and father had us under, um, we even the scores by um, paying ourselves in in lollies. Uh, so it'd sort of be every trip, it'd be a cobber or a freckle, kind of lifted on the way through. So uh, so, yeah, I I'm not sure who ended up in front to be honest, but they certainly paid their way through some lollies uh, for stacking of those shelves. 
Did you have a sense even then of what it meant to be in business or was it more just kind of oh, look, it's the way it was? Oh, I guess it was the way it was but it was hard work and, and, and it was a dedication towards the work. Um, I know that um, it was very much a life and then when mum and dad had sold that business and wanted to move across to the coast, um, we had our first ever holiday. So our holidays were always... Um, dad'd stay or mum'd stay and we go across to Port Macquarie on the north coast um, to my grandparents' place was often where our school holidays were but only one parent would be there most of the time because the other one would be running the store. Um, and then when they sold that store and, and I remember this holiday and it was a grand holiday because mum and dad didn't have any particular work commitments or anything and it was... We drove, I think, the northernmost point was Noosa and then we pretty much stopped at every single town between Noosa and Port Macquarie as they, as we had a holiday but came to understand too it was a scoping mission for mum and dad as they'd look for a business on the way down the coast. And so I remember we pulled into a little town, Barrowville, um, which uh, – um, it's sort of around the Nambucca Heads area, um, Gumbangira country. Uh, and uh, and I remember us pulling up on the main street and it's a beautiful street, a beautiful town with a veranda post um, uh, sort of shops. And um, I, I remember us sitting there and mum and dad had seen this for sale sign because that was often how businesses were sold in those days. You just put a sign up in the front of it and uh, – Mum and Dad were in talking to the owners and myself, my brother and my sister were sitting in the back of the car waiting and uh, the town drunk who we came to know as Bill Corn later on uh, after we moved there, he was scavenging through the bin and pulled out a sandwich and just started <laughs> ripping into it. <laughs> and, Welcome to town. Yeah, and Mum and Dad had come out and said, I think we might have found something. <laughs> Us kids are going... Crikey, okay. <laughs> Let's what go is then. This place? <laughs> so, so um so yeah, but um so they come across for the business and then um yeah, had uh, it was a shoe store and I guess at that time the conglomerates hadn't really taken over and these were often you could have these kind of um solo um businesses and then mum and dad worked their way up to having two stores, one in Sawtell, just south of Coffs Harbour. And the other one in um, in Barrowville, and um, and yeah, they were building for themselves a, a really nice future, I think. So. In terms of um, thinking about your own characteristics, hard work being one of those, um, where do you think your strongest characteristics come from in terms of your mum and dad, uh, whether it's the way they work or the way that they kind of um, brought up their kids? You know, where do you see them come to life? Um. Yeah, it's, I, like I think work ethic it would be the, the greatest gift for sure. Um, like it was very much instilled into us that it's something to be proud of to work hard um, or it certainly rubbed off on me. And I think because um, Dad got crook when I was about 14 or 15 and um, and he's been crook ever since. So he just uh, – he, he was a hard-working guy. Like at one stage I remember he was, I think, working three jobs like he – in between when we sold the shop and then went on that big uh, holiday thing, we were staying on a property out um, uh, near Gunnedah and Carroll 
and he was driving headers or tractors of a night time, like overnight doing, doing that, working in the club on a shift and then doing other stuff. And so he was just a hard-working guy. He, he sort of started full-time work at an obscenely young age. Um, uh, and so I guess I also got to see not only was my dad a, a, a person who worked big hours, but then when that was taken away from him, when he did get ill with a, a sort of a mystery virus, I could... I, I probably couldn't put it into words at the time, but the wrestle for him was really real. The, the fact that he couldn't work and provide was something that took him many, many years to come to terms with. And Do you have a sense yeah. of what that meant for you as a 14-year-old? Because often, you know, your dad had seen them yeah. work or, you know, whatever toil that is. Yeah, I don't know. I, like I know that there were times that it was a good idea to not be around Dad because he, he was pretty frustrated and cranky and I was a bit of a shit of a kid to go with it. So it made for a reasonably volatile mix at times. Um, but I, no, I, I don't know. It's probably – I, I don't, honestly don't think they would have been conscious until later on that I probably realised the challenge and the frustration that he went through when he'd sort of get a period of wellness and, and – um, and sort of, and the moment he got even close to feeling okay, he'd go straight out to the local abattoir and work as a cleaner, like really hard work, and bust himself in two weeks and then be off crook again. Um, and uh, so so I sort of just seen that wrestle play out over and over for a number of years, I guess. And, um, and yeah, I don't know how much it's shaped me, whether it was the very early days shaped the work ethic. Um or and the funny thing is that I actually feel like I'm the laziest person on the planet. Like I, it's a nagging voice that sits in the back of my head all the time is that I'm being lazy and I can point to evidence of all that all the time where I'm lazy but it's, it's built on the ridiculous concept that unless you're working every minute of every hour of every day that you're slacking off and, and I don't think that that was ever – enforced on me by my parents or whatever but it's certainly somewhere wired into me that to be lazy is about as bad as it gets so um so yeah i don't, I don't know I, I guess um like any, everything if you're if you're willing to blame something for the good you've got to blame it for the bad and vice versa and so i think my parents, if if I if I could lay some blame on them, it would be that they gifted me a, a great work ethic. But um, on the other hand, there's probably a real sense of guilt of when when I'm um, when I'm not as productive as what I can be, which is actually good and healthy to not um, to to slow down a bit. So, yeah. It's interesting um, around that. You know, just even thinking around anything good can can have its kryptonite or the other side of it, right? right. And, and so, what does that look like from a you know that when you almost talk about that wrestle of the internal battle of laziness? Um, like, where's the what's the form of the kryptonite? How does that kind of come come around? Um, I think I think it's the probably the negative self talk that comes with it that isn't based in any rationality. Um, is probably the least helpful side of that that voice that says, "Come on, let's this, there's more more to do." Um, on the other hand, like I really I like the sense that that's within me because I 
I, I don't believe in the finish line. Like I don't I, I don't believe that once we get that all done, then it'll be we'll be right, and and then we'll be able to clock off. Like I, I'm a fierce anti-retirement campaigner. Um, I'd like life when I'm seventy or eighty to look a lot different to what it looks like now, but I don't I don't want to find the palm tree to lay under, and that's it. Um, for mine, one of the great, I guess dreams that I'd love to have is that, uh, I don't know, someone wants me to go and speak at a conference in Portugal when I'm 75 because they still value my ideas and my concepts and um, and I say, yeah, cool, let's do it. But um, my grandkids are coming with me or something like that. That'd be a, a life well lived and one still living worthwhile. So. Yeah, we often talk about, I guess, that vocation, how important that is yeah. throughout your entire life. Um and how important, yeah, it's not about getting to the end of a work or getting to the end of a career necessarily, but crafting and, and creating what retirement, so to speak, might might kind of look like. Yeah. I don't know whether I successfully dodged that question of the kryptonite, but, yeah, anyway, I, 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 I think that there's definitely times where I'd like to give myself a bit more of a break. Um, but, uh, yeah, I... Equally, I, I'm really happy with the gifts of of, of of a strong work ethic too. Well, it probably, I guess, yeah, I mean, I don't think you've dodged it, but it can lead to, um, I guess, a question and a conversation around men, men's mental health. I mean, mental health, I think, is an, an important conversation full stop. Uh, but in particular, for men and for men from the country, um, it's often not something we talk about. Um, some of those kind of wrestles, the internal talk or the internal drive is, is something um, that isn't spoken about. And, you know, I know that, that you've had times where you've kind of wrestled with um, demons and inner voices and doubt and self-doubt. Um, how important is it for us and for men to to be able to have a voice or to be able to describe some of that wrestle have a place to be able to talk that through i don't think it's important at all if you if you're happy to lose the battle um yeah so i i think i've uh, as far as mental health goes i've had some stunning victories and some spectacular losses if i was to put it into that binary state but uh, i i think uh, the only known pathway, and, and I've I've had the full gamut of experience from you know medication to just trying to you know uh, use uh, the remedies that are at anyone's disposal. So whether it's just you know eating better and exercising better and and getting some purpose around your daily habits, uh, that's still to this day, by far and away, the, the best remedy for a lowered mood that I've found. Uh, having said that, on on top of that as well, is uh, I, th- I think being in partnership with someone like you, regardless of your profession, it's the fact that we can just have a conversation. And over time, I, I've found that being in conversation with other people is certainly helpful. And so my mood these days I think is really quite stable and, and good. 
um, certainly through my 20s and 30s was more of a challenge, uh, mid-30s. So, yeah, um, probably uh, much more challenging prior to you coming into my life, to be honest, and it wasn't that... Um, I went and married myself a psychologist to go and fix myself or anything like that. It was, it was actually save a little bit on uh, on um, on bills, but uh, no, it's a long term commitment. Yeah, right? totally. Is um, no, but uh, like I'd done a lot of work before you come along, and um, I know in I, I think it might have been last year or the year before I I, I I wrote a poem and and performed that on stage, and I can't. Uh, there were there was a, a stream within the consciousness of that piece that wasn't um, so I won't recite it verbatim or, or anything like that, but it was a a sense that I'd I'd done the work on me to have the ability to find love and stay in love, and I think I'd found love prior to that a few times, but I I don't think I'd possessed the capability to stay in love and so that work I felt was um, done or at least a fair way along the way before you come into my life so yeah we didn't mention there'd be tears sorry <laughs> we did mention there might be tears well you're <laughs> the one crying not me so there you go yes win for me so, yeah. it happens occasionally um I mean that's really lovely one of the other things that I know um, in our partnership and in our relationship and even whether it's through business because, you know, mental health impacts and, and certainly I've gone through waves myself. Um, but I think one of the things that we have done in business is you'll often, we'll often kind of step in on behalf of the other person for a period of time or if there's key decisions or, um, you know, allowing more time, whether it's on movement, exercise, those kind of priorities. Um, I think that's one of the things as well as those conversations is that ability to be able to kind of step in. Um, yeah. I think, I think we're fierce protectors of each other and that turns up when you're, say, if you're having a rough trot, then I basically come in and go, right, I'm, I'm stepping in and I'll bring the energy or I'll make the decisions or, like I'll, I'll lift the shield and you've done that a number of times and that that is almost an instantaneous reflex from us both I think is that the moment one of us voices that the other one goes, right, got it, okay. Mm. And I, I, I'm not sure we've ever – there's certainly been times where both of us have had really good energy and other times where both of us haven't had good energy but I, I know that we've always been able to – Anytime one of us has voiced a concern around our, our mood, our state, our, the challenges, the voices, the doubts, the other one just steps in with no sort of regard for self-preservation. It's just right, it's on. And I think we've, that's been one of our great skills to stay happily married and be in a, in a business that does quite well and that stuff is that we're fierce protectors of each other. I would agree, I would agree. One of the other um, people that were was very strong in your kind of upbringing and you talk about very fondly is uh, time spent with your pop um, mm. on the banks of, um, you know, going fishing with him. and Namoy. Um, the Namoy. Yes, Namoy and, River. Yeah. Um, and, 
yeah, hanging out in his caravan, having a mm. having a cup of tea. Uh, how impactful were those moments for you growing up? Oh, I was huge again at the time. That's just because mum and dad were working all the time, and like most parents are, they're trying to provide a, a future and a family. Um, I would, I was really close to both my my grandfathers. Um, they were both quite different characters, but had real similarities. Both, you know, returned soldiers. One, one um, from Darwin, where uh, he spent most of his time, never, never left Australian shores, but was uh, served up in Darwin for a lengthy period of time. Um, and then my other pop, who who fought overseas in the war, quite an extraordinarily long uh, service record as well. Fought in um, the something de- like. Two years or something. No, no, it was it was close to six. So, so he joined in thirty nine and finished in forty five. But his his time spent on the active front was yeah like a a considerable time. He'd spent uh, time in the deserts in Africa, so at El Alamein, um, and then uh, came home where they trained and and done a, a bunch of. Uh, repetitious work in North Queensland before heading to New Guinea and uh, was on the, the beachheads of Ley and Finchhaven. And so uh, Pop, who, who was um, the last grandparent that I just spoke of, uh, he lived with us as pretty much that, that my memories were that he always lived with us. Now, that wasn't the case, but um, uh, because he come back from the war, you know, really, uh, I guess... We would know it now as PTSD. Uh, for him, it was that sense of shell shock, and and Pop became, uh, I guess, the the town drunk or or one of probably a few at the time uh, in in uh, Tamworth, and and so he was he, he, I guess, it was part of the DNA. He was a very hard working guy, and he was a rabbit trapper and worked in the abattoirs and on farms and stuff, but. I guess because of the, the demons that existed within him um, after his war experience, um, any time he had money, that would then end up, uh, you know, in the boozer. And so it was very challenging. Uh, but my dad, who was very much the keeper of that family, uh, tried to bring him under his wing, like when he was 18 or 19, his own father. Uh, and they'd had a couple of unsuccessful attempts at that because... Pop still had his struggles with the with the drink, um, and this was before my time. But Pop was living with us in a, in a house, and he'd had an episode and, and got moved out um, uh, because we were very very young kids, and and Mum just as a young mum was very uncertain about um, uh, having him around. Not not for any fear for us, but more that he um, he just still had his challenges with the drink and was unreliable. And to be a functioning member of the family was a challenge. But then um, uh, when we moved over, when, when we were at the shop, Pop came and lived in a caravan on the back of the property. And that for mine was like part crash, part, you know, uh, person to tag around like a, like a pet puppy. And so he'd take me fishing and probably all the stuff Dad would have loved to have done, but he was working hard. Uh, and so, yeah, all the outdoor stuff, the fishing, the shooting, the, the hunting, the, the rabbit trapping, all, all all the stuff that was at the time was a part of a good growing up. And 
Um, so yeah, he just had a lot of time and patience as grandparents do, I think. And, uh, and so, yeah, I spent a lot of time in his caravan having cups of tea with him and he'd tell me stories and, and, um, get, get like the, the burrs and the cat's heads out of my feet and stuff like that uh, with, with, um, with a pair of tweezers. And so we just spent a lot of time doing that and, uh, he died very young, so when when I was about thirteen or fourteen, I think, um, and he was he was only in his early sixties, but he'd had such a hard life; it had taken its toll on him. But it was a it was a wonderful way to grow up. And, and my other my other grandfather, grandpa, he he lived over in Port, and so every holidays we'd go and spend time with him, and he'd get me out fishing and doing that kind of stuff. So yeah, that, they were awesome. Both of them had great times with him. One of the uh, the jobs or the the careers you went into after high school was as a in the into the abattoirs. Yep. Um, and had a few different roles in in abattoirs. You, you you now still look at knives in a very different way than most of us look at knives. Yeah, because I'm a knife. Yeah, <laughs> and cuts of meat in the supermarket of yep. what is right and what is what is wrong. Go to your local butcher, people. Please, <laughs> you, you've no idea how much stuff's on that supermarket shelf that's incorrectly marked. And anyway, that they'll get off that's my soapbox there. That's your public service announcement right Go to there. your local butcher. Um, sorry, and, and sorry, vegans. Quite a, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> spent quite a number of years in, in abattoirs um, for certainly in – for our business for the last over 13 years, but even longer, um, you went on and did a degree in, in psychology, behavioural science. science. Yep. So tell me a little bit about that journey from abattoir to behavioural scientist. Yeah, well, the funny thing about it was, and if we go right back to that um, work ethic versus laziness, and, and uh, I, I'm not sure I was ever particularly lazy, but I was misdirected as far as uh, finishing school and finishing my HSC. Uh, I... School, particularly the last couple of years, was a convenient social experiment. I, I, I was always a pretty clever kid, but uh, particularly in year 11 and 12, I was just more interested in playing cards than studying and getting good marks. And so by the time it came around in our local area, I guess because as a family, we'd never had any role models around higher education. So it was always a sense that, well, you go and get a trade or go and do that stuff. So when my brother, for example, got a cadetship with uh, the Commonwealth Bank, that was about as good as it could possibly get. So classic, you know, firstborn child getting the perfect bloody job. Um, so me being the middle... Where could you go uh, from there? That's, <laughs> it's uh, like, I feel like Daryl Kerrigan's gone straight oh, to the pool pretty room. much straight to the pool room. It was like Sunshine TAFE College, you know. So my, 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 it was like mum and dad had turned around and introduce us kids and go oh here's our son who works with uh, Commonwealth Bank and and uh here's the other one I can't remember his name but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but uh I um my challenge was because I enjoyed at the time we were living over on the coast and and I enjoyed a, a surf and stuff with a couple of mates and uh, I kind of missed the boat as far as in the local area to get a trade or or one of those things because it was never really in our keeping for me to go to university. Uh, Mum and dad had uh, pretty clear conversations with me at the time from what I can remember where they said, look, if you want to go to uni, you go, but we won't be able to support you or help you, so you'll have to do it on your own. And 
if I was probably a bit more disciplined and, and minded around that, if I had more of a goal to want to go to uni, then I could have done it for sure. But it, I just didn't have a hold on it. I didn't didn't have anyone that I seen in our family who'd went on and got a degree and, and went on and done stuff. So I didn't choose that. So I bummed around a little bit and then all of a sudden there were no jobs other than the biggest provider in the local area was the abattoirs and and so uh, which was a lot of I guess in the 80s slash 90s in small country towns that there was almost an abattoir in every town that was over about 5,000 people and so I went down that pathway of going well I need some work and went out there and then started out there and the money was really really good for an 18 year old kid and I played footy and um, you know, because it turned 18, I didn't mind a beer. And, and so that ended up being kind of life. And 10 years slipped away really, really quickly where I travelled around a bit and, and in the abattoirs itself because I'd uh, kind of get bored with a job. Then I'd ask to be moved to a different area and a different area. And so I started in the loadout throwing frozen 30-kilo boxes around in shipping containers and then driving forklifts and then going, oh, well, what, what's next? And then ended up um, just doing a variety of different jobs in there, you know, on in the boning room, on knives and whatever else. So that ended up being life for about 10 years. And then what? Like what, what was the, um, the decision to, to leave that and go in a different area? Because I can imagine if it's what you know for 10 years and there's not a huge other pathways or potential possibilities then the easier way would have been to stay with it. Oh, look, I, I at the time I was down in the Riverina uh, living in town, Leeton, um, and I was working at an abattoir down there called Rockdale. And the Meatworks at the time, they were trialling a new experiment of um, meat inspectors were a government-paid uh, job, so Aquis used to do that, so all the meat inspection and certificates and stuff would happen. Uh, but they were trialling uh, company-paid meat inspection. So uh, I think there were two or three abattoirs that decided to to try their own inspectors under guidance of Aquis. So I got picked as one of four, I think, from our abattoirs and there was about a, a group of about 16 or 12 or something that would travel one week on one week off, so every week we'd go down to Canberra to the Canberra Institute of Technology and study meat inspection and then come home and work for a week and do our study and then go back and do the intensive. And, and look, it was fantastic. It was my first ever experience of a paid work trip where work paid for food and the bar and stuff. And I can tell you a group of meat workers um, figured that out really quickly that you'd order something cheap on the menu and top that up with a few beers on top but um the one thing it did other than age me really quickly because we were um we were drawn to the nightlife of uh, Monica and other places around Canberra far too often but uh it unlocked a love of self-directed learning so the particularly the, the subjects around anatomy and physiology and stuff I just loved and uh, so whilst we were studying the anatomy and physiology of bovines and porcines and, you know, goats and, and sheep and all the rest of it, uh, they're still mammals. And so the muscles and the musculature and the general systems, other than their ruminants and whatnot, and 
won't get too far down there, but I found it quite fascinating and so I, I really did well at it and it was the first time I went, oh, this learning caper can actually be fun and can be enjoyable. And so the weird thing was I, I finished my practical, done a couple of weeks practical in Young and got minted as a, as a meat inspector and then never practised a day. Um, it was not long after that that I finished up in the abattoirs. You're right, as I had zero skills other than that. But I guess it was an awakening that there might be something else out there for me. And it didn't translate straight into education, um, but it just translated into it might be time for something else. And so the only other skill set I had at the time was um, I used to work in a pub on Friday nights because I'd play footy on Saturday nights and I had this terrible propensity to enjoy myself on a Friday night and and that would result for a very good playing performance on a Saturday. So I ended up going, well, if I can't beat them, I'll join them. And so I started working at the pub on Friday nights and, and that was the only other skill set I had was being able to pour a beer and stand on a door and be a bouncer. And so that was the transition from abattoirs was to hospitality and I ended up running a pub and then from there ended up in TAFE uh, running a, a tourism and hospitality college and that was when all of a sudden I was in and amongst a, a learning environment and so I started to study there and that then unlocked uh, a kind of a an opportunity because one of the units that I did as part of a graduate certificate was a one based in psychology and it was like uh, the grass was greener and the sky was blue. I, I kind of found the thing that I was deeply fascinated by and so that that started that tier. And even since then it's been a huge fascination and a deep study and an ongoing um, obsession of yours. I know like even right now you are a, a trusted advisor to some of the, the top tier CEOs and executives around Australia in, in some big companies because uh, they're, they're absolutely fascinated in your thinking and take and approach on leadership and, and culture. Um, some of the, the intangibles when it comes to business that, that can be hard to kind of concept. So from that early age of kind of, you know, that early stage of seeing, hey, this is something I'm interested in, like that's been a huge kind of growth area as well for you. I'm interested in, we're obviously sitting smack bang in the middle of COVID-19, which has um, been, basically is not a single workplace that hasn't impacted. Um, and Ours notwithstanding. So. Including ours, <laughs> yeah. including ours. So I'm interested from a, you know, a leadership and a culture perspective, what are some of the shifts that you've seen and some of the trends you think will happen in the way that work is done as we move forward, because a lot of people are talking about or have spoken about, you know, going back to normal and this is just a period and I'm not convinced that that is the case. But what are some of the trends from, I guess, the conversations you've seen in the way that we will now need to shift how work is done? I don't know. I, I, it's such a once in a hundred year experience that I'm not sure I can speak with any confidence around what the trends are. Like I... I I would like to think that there's a trend back to a more conservative business principle. So rather than the, I guess the the startup mentality of um, run at a loss and pour everything into your business to try and achieve scale to then get a, a buyout at, at a gazillion dollars. Um, 
I think that that would be really tested at the moment because I, I think that businesses that um, had anchored around principles of cash and and trying to make a profit um, are probably in a decent place, um, even though going to be really difficult time they might have a little bit of a war chest that'll help them out whereas others uh, unless you can do a cap raise you're going to be in strife so i wonder whether that's going to be affected having said that the irrationality of human beings tells me that probably not um when you look at the current stock market and the way it's just making no sense but then you hear that everyone's making money so they're everyone like the i think we're reading in the paper just this morning about um, there's been a, a threefold increase in people uh, registering uh, with stockbrokers so that they can invest in the stock market, which is just all the signs of a massive bubble that's going to explode. Um, so that'll be interesting to see whether this second wave of economic downturn is going to make the first one look like a puppy. Um, that concerns me. Uh, as a business owner, is I think we're up for a really deep recession. Um, which will make things more trying for businesses. Um, as far as trends for businesses, I, I think that if we just look at the human psyche and what we know around habits and and uh, motivation science and couple all those things together and the length of time that people have had to spend not present in the workplace but still working tells us that there'll be some significant settling into that area. So I think that distributed teams and uh, work from anywhere is going to be a permanent fixture. Now, not every business is, but I think that there's going to be significant numbers within businesses that are going to have to navigate how to work in a distributed fashion. The good thing is we've got the interwebs, which help that take place. You wouldn't have been able to do it in a different era. That I, I wonder whether we're heading for a, an era of a more considered conservatism in business and back to some time-honoured principles around business um, and whether we're going to see that also with a radical shift in how businesses are and that's not being geographically located or this sense that we've got to be around each other to be a high-performing team that gives value to the market. What are some of the... Um the kind of priorities that leaders might need to consider at the moment if they're facing, and, and many are right at this point in time, having teams working from anywhere, whether they're working from home or um, in different locations or not coming together. Some are having kind of half teams kind of come together and that I think might continue for a period of time. But leaders who I guess have to be the people that, the, the people that others look to in times of uncertainty – what are some of their priorities right now? I think we're coming out of a period where... Um, so I think we're entering into a period of optimism even in amongst the even amongst the shitstorm. Like I, I think uh, that in the early days of true grief, uh, optimism is not a great mix on it and certainly I've counselled a, a, uh, a few people in... in don't like the word high, but in, in positions of responsibility in big businesses that in the early days people look to you and they're uncertain, but coming at it with optimism in the midst of grief and trauma is a really poor mix. She'll um, be right, we'll be fine. Yeah, well, it's like, like if someone close to you, you lost, 
or someone you knew lost someone close to them, you don't walk up to them at the funeral and say there's plenty more fish in the sea. Um, there's a time and a place for that. However, if you're a friend of theirs, in two years' time it might be, or in 12 months' time it might be the time to do that. And much the same for leaders in businesses. I think we're at the time where people want to see some optimism from their leaders. I think three months ago, four months ago, wouldn't have been a great time. Could have been quite insensitive. But I think the time is, uh, it, it's time to talk about, well, where are the opportunities and how can we reshape this for a better future? And so I think that that's in some ways a responsibility along with time on a principles around business and that is to keep it a going concern and run a business effectively and well and know your cash position. It doesn't matter whether you're a multi-billion dollar company or a small business, but know the basics well so you're making good principle-based decisions. Um, I, I think, I, and, and if, if I had advice for leaders of any kind, it would be to, in times of uncertainty, come back to what's a principles framework for your decisions. And I know that something we've done is sat down and gone, well, if we're going to make big decisions, on behalf of which principles are they? Because if they were just off our own personal values, like we, we love her, we want to keep everyone on or we... We, we aggressively want to go after this kind of area or do this kind of stuff. It, is it really born of our personal values or is it born of the principles that are required to do it legally and fairly and well? And, and when I say those things, these big principles of being legal and fair and those kind of things, that doesn't mean that they don't suck. Like <laughs> sometimes the the... The hardest things to do in life are the right things, mm. you know. And, and we've had those, as you said, in our own business. We've we've had to face those principles oh, and write them down and call totally. each other out on, on oh, some totally, of those. You know, and, and I, you know, I think if you were a leader in a business that's talking to your people and the other leaders in the business about where are we coming from, like what are the – and, you you know, geez, we, we've made gazillion mistakes and – done that but I think when it comes to the big decisions sitting down and coming from what are the principles that we're operating from is is a really good start. So culture is really important as well and culture is not something that doesn't exist it always exists whenever you get two or more people together there is a culture or culturing Um, but at this point in time and even hearing some of those responses from you, you know, it's important for leaders to making sure that the business is an ongoing concern, that cash, that we're performing, those sorts of things. Some of the things we hear is I don't have time for culture, um, that we'll get around to that later. It feels like the, the nice to have rather than critical essential when we're in the middle of unknown uncertainty and we need to tie down the key things. Where does culture sit in amongst uncertainty for leaders in the way that they, you know, whether it's those decisions around principles um, or the decisions they're making in the conversations they're having with their team? What advice would you have around how they look, how we look at culture? Well, yeah, you're right in that that culture exists whether you want it to or not. And there's also no such thing as a good culture and a bad culture, which is sometimes really hard to hear. But there is just culture. Now, whether it's aligned to being what direction you want to go in or not, how congruent is it towards the collective values of the organisation or not, are, are more interesting questions than it's a good culture or a bad culture. It's just culture. Um, 
I think that, and it's something I've been throwing around a little bit as a internal theory based around it, is that I think that in times of deep uncertainty that cultures more than anything actually need to focus on performance. And if we look at it from an anthropological point of view, that the one thing that underpins all performance on the planet, uh, all cultures on the planet is performance. So if it was... 20,000 years ago it might have been surviving the winter or crossing the strait or making the hunt and so there was always a sense of performance uh, when times are tough that you have to perform or the culture dies like it literally will die because the people will die Um, so that was way back then and I think that there's this sense that when when times are challenging and when there's a real struggle on and when we're really uncertain, the best place to go is to focus on performance. And that would, there would be people probably listening to this, card-carrying culture champions, and I consider myself one, but not at the expense of performance. And I actually would say that COVID has done one thing and it's sharpened my resolve around this, is that culture is dependent upon performance, not the other way around. And that's only ever really put to the test when underperformance is really significant. So you can have what would be perceived as an awesome culture, but it can be one step away from falling over as well. And there's there's a litany of examples where there's been this really cool and funky culture and people love turning up to work and they go broke mm. and it ceases to exist as a culture. And so I think when times get tough and uncertain, having a culture that knows to go back to performance as its bedrock to make sure it's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the base of the pyramid in, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is uh, shelter, safety, you know, biological needs. And in business, it's business performance, like making sure that the business isn't going broke, that, 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 that it's hitting its markers and things like that are deeply important and then what it does is give this platform for culture and the great gift and and our great friend Michael Henderson who's been on your show, he he says that it's mankind's greatest invention. So or whether that's womankind's greatest invention (laughs) or personkind's greatest invention but um, human beings because we're quite an unremarkable animal until we bond together and then we shift the world. And so when... When home base is taken care of, when the bottom of that pyramid is okay, that's when we can flourish through culture. But cultures don't matter if you're falling off a cliff. And I, I love that challenge because in some ways I think the fear of for the card-carrying culture people, of which we are as well, is that if you only talk about performance, it, it's almost um, assumed that it's performance at any cost. Or, or that it's mutually exclusive and they're not. Like it's – we can talk about culture and performance together. Um, I, I, and I think that what we can do is put culture first when we're performing really, really well. So, so that's where we could have this sense that culture comes first when we've already taken care of the performance side of things. And, and you could certainly argue that having a culture that values and focuses on performance is, is, is all part of the same thing. But at any point, so values are they're, they're not locked and loaded. But there's this great sort of, uh, I don't know, misunderstanding about what, cult, what values are. 
and they're there to serve us, not for us to serve them. And we can consciously change values and we can do the work to shift values. And so for an organisation, uh, if times have gotten tough through COVID, one of the things I'd come back to is go, what do we need to do to survive if it's that bad? Is then we need to value certain things that we may not have valued previously. And that's not being incongruent. That's not, if your top level values were, um, I don't know, harmony, uh, customer connection, um, uh, innovation, and, and I don't know, choose any of the buzzwords. <laughs> but if all of a sudden you've lost 90% of your customer base and let's say tourism. Mm. So let's imagine for a second what might be some values of a tourism organisation. So customer service, um, you know, might be a sense of surprise or delight. It might be adventure. It could be all those things. And so if all of a sudden it's this business has just been so significantly impacted, it doesn't, it, it's not incongruent to change the values of that organisation. It's bloody necessary and it's much the same as if you've had values in your life personally, so forget business for a second, and you've had these big values that in, in effect you've stayed congruent to in your life. But if things are going to hell in a handbasket, like, then what we need to do is shift our values and the way that they work within our lives or at the very least shift the meaning on how we interpret those values. So those, those almost those bottom line values can rise up because they're what we need right now totally yeah like and and i think that that happens right through our lives there's certainly times i think universally through our 30s most people tend to uh, achievement starts to really rear up for us uh, for a lot of people we tend to see that in values maps and then it softens right off in the 50s and 60s right so so that it was really useful for a period of time but then it becomes much less a value we might take a higher order value like wisdom or something like that in preference of it because we want to express what we've learned as knowledge later on. So for mine, I think it's actually contextual for the times. Like I admire a business uh, of any kind that's being successful who decides to almost dividend reinvest back into its culture and it says how do we be even stronger and stronger and stronger. But equally, if we've taken a few wrong turns and Every great business success story is filled with those examples where we have to, you know, tighten the, tighten the belt and, and get focused on what really matters, which in itself is actually becoming a new culture, like it's becoming the next day's culture, which of course we can move and change over time in itself. But right now, if businesses are challenged and struggling and there's plenty of them i'd come back to the big pillar of how do we perform really well because then what happens is when we got there's lots of people who are working on reduced hours or in really challenging workplaces but all of a sudden if we're performing that what that does for our self-worth and for our contribution to something bigger than ourselves makes us feel stronger and makes us feel better yeah, job satisfaction, the value totally. that I'm contributing, totally. that that we're actually keeping this business afloat for a period of time, probably more back in March here in Australia, March, April, May, a lot of business owners, but even... March um, 13th, 14th, 15th <laughs> yeah, and 16th, they're burnt seared, into my brain. Seared into our brains. Yeah. Um, 
you know, across those months, I know business owners, but also um, those executives with huge amounts of responsibility worked 16-hour days, seven days a week with, with that weight of business and responsibility on their, their shoulders and plenty are still doing that. Um, at, right here at the moment, Melbourne are currently in lockdown and so yeah. a lot of those businesses that particularly your hospitality kind of sector were just starting to come out of it and now are kind of going back down again. And energy just as a business owner, a business leader is something that has, I think, taken a big hit for a lot of leaders. What, how, you know, if a business owner is listening and going, I just don't have the energy or I don't know what the next step is, I care deeply about my people, this work matters and, and all the levers I used to be able to pull to change business are no longer there because it's outside of my control. Where do, where do business owners come back to? Oh, look, it's it's really tough because we've gone through that ourselves and I think it's really human for any business owner to carry doubt around the future. Like I, I know for ourselves is, and I think we said it to our own staff, is that for the first time in business in 13 years, a few months ago I just went, I actually don't know what the future holds. Like it was the first time I had a real sense of I have no fucking idea. I just literally mm. didn't know. And I know that lots of business owners must be feeling the same thing. I think when we lose that sense of where where we're heading towards, it makes progress manifestly hard. And as we know, progress is such a huge motivator for us. So it becomes tremendously hard to stay motivated when one of our primary motivators is taken away. So in other words, we don't know where we're heading, so we can't measure where we're at on the journey so i think that that would be one of the things is come back to what what can you what can you measure or point out for yourself um you know in the in the in the short term that you could go right well i'll just get to that post which which will help for sure i think there's certainly at the moment i'm i'm working coach myself around energy because it took a good beating and a bashing on that kind of front and um and i i probably through the realization of it actually realized how how uh, lowered my energy state had been not just from covid but prior to that it was one of those kind of um it's, it's like a drunk driver someone turned around and going uh, hang on haven't you had too much drink no nah, i'm bloody fine i'll, I'll be right you know going. And um, a lot of business owners and leaders have, right? They've they've operated on. Yeah, we probably. Keep how short have we been on on how empty is the tank been? And so, you know, I know we had a conversation about this uh, a week or two ago, where it was kind of like a sudden realization for me that probably took a lot of beaten into me. But it was that sense of oh, maybe maybe I've been running short for a good while, and now it's really time to prioritize energy so i prioritize exercise and i'm pretty good at setting myself a goal and doing it whether it was training for a marathon or kokoda or whatever else it was and uh, you know like but i probably have never really prioritized energy and so that's actually quite enlightening and I'm, I'm only early on in the journey in regards to that is to go well what does that look like and so in my earliest time around that in the last six weeks it's been looking at the biggest pillars of energy and the first one is sleep 
and I wasn't sleeping well um, and we've done a really, really good job in regards to that. Like I'm bloody beating you into bed. It's amazing. 8, 8.30, like, who are it's you? It's crazy, yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I read an autobiography each night because I, I used to read an obsessive amount of non-fiction business books but I have a brain that when I read them it figures them out really quickly and then I go, how can I use this? And so, uh, which is not conducive to going to sleep, right? No, you just (laughs) have a head full of ideas. And so, the problem was, I had this really poor routine that led to sleep, which meant I kind of had to be dog tired to go to sleep because I'd lay down. And unless I'd hit the pillow and fall asleep straight away, my brain would start ticking and I'd think of ideas and business and stuff, and then I'd be back up. But I didn't have a routine. And so it was a great gift that Nam Baldwin, another uh, guest who's been on your show and he's just a superstar Nam, is he gave me this process of winding down and it starts from about five o'clock, six o'clock out where I, I do some journaling and reflecting on the day and then what's the important stuff for the day and then try and follow it up with a shower um, straight after where I, I use the tactile nature of the water running over me to let wash the day away and start that process and then I I read an autobiography um, as the final sort of piece of the puzzle when I go to bed to allow me to read something that is interesting but doesn't ping ideas in my head and um, and yeah there's ones like for example I'm reading uh, Andre Agassi's uh, autobiography biography at the moment which I put on the list for ages to read and it's just a lot it's a really interesting read and and I enjoy going to bed to read it but I also feel like I can drop it at any time because Andre will be fine without me <laughs> and uh and and like I read Osha Ginsburg's uh one it's another guest on your show there you go um I've I've hardly listened to any of your podcasts because I listen to you all the time. So, uh, and you but, had to wait till number hundred. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, anyway. which by the way, it's remarkable. You know, this the, number hundred. I think it's the best. So oh, far. No, 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 I'm not talking about this being <laughs> remarkable. You, you duck. So, so I'm talking about um, doing a hundred of these. It's really amazing. Mm. And yeah, like I, um, I. I love to use the term I'm proud of you, but that's <laughs> we're not allowed to use that because of Tara Bloody Diversity, who, yes. there you go, another podcast, podcast, but um, uh, told us about the way she tells people she's proud of them. And yeah, proud is more condescending, actually. If you, so, yes. <laughs> so thanks for that, there Tara. You've ruined that for us forever. But I, I, I you doing 100 podcasts is, is a remarkable achievement. It's been awesome. There's really cool stories to keep sharing and the more that I kind of, yeah, speak to people and there's more interesting and fascinating stories to share. So hopefully there's another hundred more. Mm. Where were we chatting? We were talking about autobiographies and energy. Oh, yeah, energy and and the the things to kind of take care of. Mm. So that that winding down and I think particularly to – kind of loop back to where we're talking about distributed teams and and remote teams and work from anywhere. It's the great gift that I've been offering. Like, so I've received it from NAM, but I've been offering to my team and anyone who cares to know about it because we don't have the commute as much as we used to, you know, hate it 
um, whether it was traveling on a plane home or driving down the M1 or whatever, it gave us a chance to kind of start a process of shifting out of work. Um, I think with distributed teams, it's one of the great challenges is the sense that I might put work down, but my brain might not put work down because I don't have this ritual. So like I'd offer that up to anyone that that's been hugely impactful for me to to feel a sense that I'm valuing the number one recovery tool on the planet and that is sleep, which I can feel the effect that that's having for me is to, to have a good night's sleep, which is now allowing me to start to make some other changes. So, I, I, you know, stay tuned. It'll be interesting to see where the next six months goes to, but I, I'd like to keep this focus on energy uh, not not just a not just an exercise based goal, which has typically been how I'll get a sense of wellness. Is choose a big scary goal that scares the living bejesus out of me, and then I I just do that, and then I fall off the cliff after it, and then got to find something else. And so I'd like to keep this more as a value over time, a sense of taking care of my energy better. We certainly know all the research um, and the priority around sleep is absolutely critical. The ability to face the unknown, to be able to have the tough conversations, be able to make the decisions. If you've rested well is so different versus if you're not sleeping well. One of the things we've done with our team, and again, it has been that duality of a conversation around both performance and culture, has been within the culture of our team who are now operating distributed and that's definitely a change that we've put into place. Um, as a result of COVID-19 and, you know, operationally that was very easy to do um, but we're having ongoing conversations about what that means for us as a, as a culture and performance but we have put into place some rituals, uh, some common things throughout the day and the week and I'd love you to speak to those because I think they'd be really helpful for people listening around some of the things that we're doing with our team and again it's kind of an ongoing see how they work and see how they, they stick, but they're, um, they're really, really helping out for the energy, both of us, but also thinking about the energy of our culture. I'll talk about rituals and after it I'd like to talk about um, a non-negotiable characteristic that I think people have got to have if they're going to do work from anywhere well. So remind me mm-hmm. about that because I'm on a bit of a soapbox about that lately. But as far as the rituals go, because... When we were in a, an, an office or a shop or we had this physical environment that we went into, we didn't realise how much of our behaviour was shaped by that environment. So if you're having a bit of a rough trot, you haven't slept, the kids have kept you up, you've kind of you know, had a hangover, you, I don't know, what, your project has kind of petered to an end or whatever it was that was affecting your motivation, you had all of these anchors that kept you motivated. So there was... Um, set working hours there was your desk there was meetings to go to so even your worst days weren't that bad as much as we probably kidded ourselves how productive we were in a in a in a physical office we never were that productive we we were pretty good but what we had on the bad days was we still had the safety net the great challenge of uh, distributed teams or work from anywhere is that it takes all caps off your uber productivity so you have no distractions you can get in a massive flow state and most people i've spoken to have have talked about that in glowing terms how they've never been more productive up until the point that they're not and so whilst it's given us the top of the peak around performance so it's given us these amazing flow states 
it's also what goes up must come down and the other end of it is this sense of just bottomless pit of really low motivation you've experienced it i've experienced it our team have experienced it in different ways shapes and forms and i think that that's going to be in some ways the next wave as people navigate and get past the novelty of working from anywhere is that how do we build a safety net under our bad days because the bad days are really bad without those supporting structures in place so what have we put in and what would i recommend is you've got to really think about the rituals that your team can do and belong to and have a sense of pride in and so the ones that we set up for ourselves was uh, a win the morning as a as a as a a behavioural trademark, uh, a sense that we, we do a rally at 10 o'clock via Zoom as a team and it's not compulsory. It's if you, if you don't have a client meeting on or training day or something pressing, you attend that. But it gives you this window if you start work and we've got some people who start at 7 and others start at 8 and 8.30. But it gives you this sprint that you can go on until the 10 o'clock meeting and it's that sense of winning the morning, trying to make that massively productive and if you can almost get your day's worth of productivity done by then then that's something to be really proud of and we actively moved that um initial it was nine o'clock to start with we Mm. tried to recreate the office at home and said let's do a stand-up rally so to speak what we found with people dropping kids off and this that and everything else and kids not going to school was that um some people couldn't get started on their work till 8 30 and then nine o'clock was a meeting and so you got nothing done and then all of a sudden you've got half an hour and, and you feel as though the day's away from you. So simply by shifting it out to 10 o'clock gave this sense of real purposeful productivity to start the day. Um, you get this kind of like energy boost from the from the Kickstarter at 10, which then lets you follow through to lunch, which is great. But what we also found was that you can just get into the grind. And so our second big ritual, which we've got our team – you know embracing and and promoting is this seize the midday so we all know the kind of term carpe diem seize the day well we said let's seize the midday because it's one of the great gifts of work from anywhere is there's nothing stopping any of us from going for a walk along the beach like from you know like we you know except if you don't live if you don't live near the beach like (laughs) but you know going for a walk down the local park taking your dog for a walk doing stuff that is tremendously enjoyable is when we're in the city office block and go into that those things become eminently more difficult and so why not use that gift and so the way we've done that is through our slack channel that we have internally we promote that like you take pictures you brag about it to your teammates so that we all can go yeah like and it encourages you right like doesn't it like oh, you, yeah. you almost feel as though you're letting the team down if you're not doing it at some point as well it's not every single day that everyone's just out there roller skating and kind of doing their thing but for you know for some of us it is and and it is that sense to go yeah i can do this and i should be doing this and and then it's that absolute celebration i know we've had a few you know um, even people in the team going i love that we're celebrating this that it's not only okay it's encouraged to get my active wear on and go for a walk and it might be for 10 minutes it, like for some it doesn't have to be long for others it's a it's a hardcore workout for others it's roller skating for others it's <coughs> sitting in the sun down by the local creek 
But it's the sharing the photos that it is actually really energizing. I'm probably the worst of everyone in the yeah, team. You I'm probably terrible. Are. But it but it is the sense of when you do it and you don't need to do it every day to then tap into the gratitude of what distributive work can be. And it's a reminder that well we, we get it pretty good if we do this well and equally if you just get into the grind then you might as well be anywhere to be in the grind. And so then of course what happens is you get that energy burst for the afternoon. But if you've been massively productive and you've won the morning, all the pressure's off as far as what you can do in the afternoon. And so we have craft-a-noon, which some of the team still think it's way too naff until I say it's craft beer a noon, which some of them get really <laughs> lit up by, speaking of you, Kim Davis. Um, so and, and so it's that sense of have a play in the arvos. If you've done the heavy lifting in the morning – Give yourself a chance to get across. Now, of course, there's going to be competing, you know, client demands and stuff that sometimes you've got to get in and just dig in. But by and large, there are three rituals that help us a, a lot. So there was something I was going to get you to remind me of. And Characteristics. Yeah. So, I, And this is one of the things that I think um, we could talk all day about rituals and structures and, um, you know, performance-based measures and, um, project software and all these kind of things for distributed teams to set them up for success and all those things will. But I think that there's a characteristic that's going to be required by distributed or remote or work from anywhere teams that they're going to have to have as a real objective. And, and I don't mean as in an objective that you get to the end of the goal. It's a never-ending pursuit. Um and that is around emotional wisdom because I, I think given uh, that we won't have as much face-to-face time together and whilst we can Zoom and do that kind of stuff is that there's going to be a lot of misinterpretation. There's going to be a lot of times where we'll doubt the future or we'll think, why did that person say that to me or what should I be doing right now or the internal wrestle of I'm doing too much or I'm not doing enough. And so I think that teams that embrace a sense and I've been talking to our team about it is that I think that we've got to be in the pursuit of emotional wisdom to, to be excellent as a distributed team. We've got to know when this is made up in my head, when this is something that was misinterpreted, that I've got to, I've got to have the courage, you know, which is wisdom, is I've got to have the courage at times to raise my voice and other times to know this is all about me and it's not anyone else's thing. And so it's it's not that that stuff hasn't always been valuable for a team, but I think when you distribute it, it's going to take enormously wise people with their management of their emotions to do really well. Why is it more important for distributed teams? Because they don't see each other as much. And, and I think you're in your own head and – like we're all pretty ordinary to our own selves in our own heads and ordinary to others. Like how many times have we been driving to work and you just like if you acted on all your impulses, like you would have killed half a dozen people on the way. And They just, deserved it. They didn't put their blinker on. <laughs> exactly. But like we go from zero to 100 in a nanosecond and we've all done it. Anyone out there who's kind of going, oh, I've never had that conversation. Like we've, we've all threatened to do this that we've all wanted to quit our jobs a million times or change it on a, but we know that that thought isn't who we are like it's it's you are not your thoughts and it's not this kind of trite thing that's peddled out by snake oil people is our, our, our thoughts are fiction 
But when we repeat them to ourselves over and over and over and over and over again, that fiction becomes reality. And so much the same as a team, and back to the question of why do distributed teams who aren't under the same roof need this wisdom more than ever is because we all have these ridiculous irrational thoughts that float through our brain. We have these cognitive biases that run amok trying to help us and save us but often getting us into more trouble than what we should be in. And it takes a sense of maturity and wisdom and, and, and self-awareness to go, that's fiction. And I can talk about this and I can have a conversation and check on that. Was that right or not? Or when you said this, this made me feel really not well valued. And, and allow the person to, 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 to go, I, I, hang on, I, sorry, I actually didn't mean that at all. I was, I was just under the pump or whatever and then we can sort that out for what it was. And so to be – and I guess what I'm talking about there is in the pursuit of excellence. Like I, I don't think you need to be an especially emotionally wise team if you've got really good structures in place. Um, but to be really excellent you do because we know we've got to paint between the lines, not just – you know, like uh, outside the lines, not just between them to be excellent. And I guess, you know, what even as you were chatting, what comes to mind for me is it does underpin high performance because it's in those um, doubts or when we don't say something or um, we hold on to something someone said two weeks ago and we still haven't picked up the phone, then speed doesn't happen, performance doesn't happen at the same level that it possibly could. Uh, so it's almost like it's critical in order for performance and connection um, equally. 100%. All, all, all highest performance is about managing risk. And I don't mean as in like eliminating risk. I mean it's taking risks. Like uh, you, you, you can't find the best in the world anywhere and, and not find like a correlation towards risk taking. Well, that's going to – isn't it Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability is uh, – Emotional Emotionally exposure, risk and uncertainty. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean you take the best sports people in the world, if you took a Jess Fox, you know, world champion canoeist or, or a, like Steph Gilmore, you know, um, equal most capped uh, female surfer Kelly Slater, 11 times world champion, they know how to take risks. Sometimes it doesn't come off but they've worked out to take the risk what's required and that it's worth the risk. And a high-performing team needs to take risks and some of those risks are emotional risks. So it's actually putting yourself out there. It's actually going, look, I think that this is just a big made-up story in my head but I've got to voice it and the other person to go, you're 100% right, it was all made up, you know. But the risk that they might go, you're not mistaken, it's true and realise that we'll still work it out. Like that's the best teams have that ability. And it's better to work it out with all cards on the table than the assumptions that are run, run awry. Totally, yeah. So I think, you know, in the new world of work, I wonder whether the gap between the haves and the have-nots or the mediocre and the brilliant is going to be even wider. I, I, I ponder that thought and I think it's going to be um, – you know, where you spoke about Brene Brown and the wonderful work around vulnerability. And I think some people have picked that up pretty well. I think some people have done like a 
uh, a watered <laughs> down version, version of it. Like where they go, well, being vulnerable is me just telling you, like I think there's been some leaders who've just vomited vulnerability all over their team but without boundary and without um, a sense of, of responsibility um, and getting the balance of those things, which is there is no like... Well, um, even Brene's work says that's not vulnerability. That's, no, that's just, right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that forever but I, I definitely think that the teams who can master or at least be seeking mastery around their emotional management now more than ever have the chance to shine. I want to go down a slightly different pathway around um, a risk, and this might be strange to kind of term it as a risk, uh, but more kind of a, a creative expression, an outlet that uh, that you have taken and took a couple of years ago. Words is something you are drawn to, the way that words craft together, the way that they connect storytelling and almost picture you listening to your pop telling stories. Um, I wonder where some of, you know, whether some of that kind of got woven into to that love of words. Uh, but a couple of years ago for a conference, you ventured on the creative expression of developing a spoken word poetry piece which you recited on stage backed by music and by beautiful um, images, you know, moving images as well as kind of video. What what captured you to want to follow that or pursue that creative expression and I guess the, the roller coaster that it was because creativity is risk. It's putting yourself out there. It's, it's the possibility of failing or being critiqued. Mm. What took you on that journey? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it was a sense that um – it most certainly wasn't I've done everything that I could do so I need a new challenge. Like I, I'm that far away from from that as far as, say, speaking on stage at a conference. There's, it's a never-ending pursuit of excellence where you can keep honing your craft. But I did have a sense that I wanted to do things with a, I don't know, a freshened sense of, of expression. So I wanted to see whether the concepts that I was talking to people about, so my typical persona on stage is a little bit of, I don't know, it's a combination, weird combination of um, ex-meat worker, country boy slash mad scientist. So I'd try and come at it from a very grounded approach with a few homespun yarns with some decent science layered within it. And that's what's been home base for me for a while where I'll present some data or research or science but I, I unwrap it to the point where it might almost be unrecognizable and it's more recognizable as practical terms um, and so I'd been in that space and quite comfortable with being able to talk in regards to topics for, like that for a while but I was intrigued whether there was another way to access and break down the defenses of of an audience um, through a more creative you know expression and so yeah I, I i i you're right as i've always enjoyed writing and words in fact if i had the choice between speaking and writing and if it was a binary choice where it just said you choose one or the other as much as i do love speaking on stage and love talking to audiences and and rooms and so on uh if i only had the two i'd write um so i do love language even though i with my broad Australian accent, tend to murder it really well, but I but I do love words and I like to write, um, and uh, it probably drew me towards well, how do I 
how do I use that word craft to break down the defences of a cynical, you know, sceptical, been to a thousand conferences type of group? And like I've seen some some friends, extraordinary speakers, male and female, who've you know been able to do that through the power of story, and and whilst I can story tell okay, and I can do that, and it's part of it. I went well. What's another way? Now I can't play an instrument to save my life. Like <laughs> I, I have a, I have short a short of guitar. Lesson. I have a ukulele, um, and I have an alter ego that when plays the ukulele, uh, his name's Brian Dangerford. I'm not and married to Brian Dangerford. Brian Dangerford. He uh, is. Uh, one night only, one verse only. So he he just plays. <laughs> I can never hit the bridge, uh, but if it's got four chords, I can I can somewhat manage that. Um, same strumming pattern for all songs, but um, but I can't do that. And I figured that if I got up on my ukulele on stage in front of a thousand people, that that wouldn't be that well received. So what was the other expression that I could do? And it was poetry. And so, yeah, I went on the hunt. I I, um, I enlisted some help. So our mate Michael Dixon, uh, there you go, another person so from the bloody the podcast. podcast. There you go. <laughs> haven't listened to his episode either. But <laughs> anyway, sorry, Mike. Um, but uh, I – I because I, I was a bit of that um, – I was scared of the capability of what, what I could do or where could I go or – and I remember – um, having him as a mentor to help steer me through the process and he just frustrated the shit out of me because he, he just sat in the space and encouraged me and like I was going, no, 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 like uh, let me send you through something and then you can send it back with red pen and tell me where I got it right or wrong and I'd send it through and he'd just go, mm, that's awesome, like and what are you going to do? And I'd go, no, 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 you're supposed to be like, you know, telling me you like what what rhyme what word would rhyme with that and and how do I do that and send me through some people that you think do it really well so I can study them and but he just very patiently and annoyingly held the space to let me just find my way now the piece that you're talking about um, that I performed so my first piece and it was a it was a it was a gigantic risk in regards to like it wasn't a gigantic risk in regards to a you know someone running across four lanes of traffic to pick up a small child or or you know hurdle themselves off a hundred foot cliff or anything like that but it was a big risk in that I was trying something that had never been done for me before and that was to stand in a corporate audience and perform poetry and I think for a lot of people that risk is the hardest one because you can choose that risk, right? Yeah, well, you know, like I could have went out and done my usual stuff and done a reasonable job of it, um, but I didn't even know whether it was going to work. And uh, I actually spent six months crafting the piece. Like it was just an inordinate amount of time to come up with a point where I was happy enough with it. Um, I've since produced a number of pieces that, you know, I've done overnight, but that one it meant so much to me i obsessed over every line and every word and every part of it and i wouldn't say that it's my best piece but it was the first piece and i also designed it so that it would creep up on the audience so there was no rhyming or rhythm nature to the piece until um, about 20 seconds 30 seconds in so it was sort of a a starting piece that was just reflected on life you know that 
as I reached the halfway point of my life, I realised something as true as the constant ebb of the tide. And so there's, there was nothing in there to signal that a piece of poetry had happened. And then a few bars of music and some visuals were kicking up on screen and and then, you know, I started into the rhyme and, and even then it was a soft entry to it and then a break from it. So that the design of it was to create for the audience was, is this guy actually doing a poem? Nah. Oh, he is. And, and I purposely designed it that way so that people would be a little shocked and then come on the journey with me. And so... I, I obsessed way too much over the word craft in the early days of it and it was a mess and it wasn't until I actually came back to a couple of the really big universal things that people could connect to and one was a story about my pop and the other one was a story about you. And and so one was to talk about the you know, the connection to a beloved grandparent, which we can all relate to, or the very the the vast majority of us can. And the other one was to talk about the connection to a loved one. And so I think that piece uh, swept people away. And, um, and yeah, so I've, I've performed that a number of times on stage. I remember it wasn't uh, – it was towards the end of last year, which seems oh, like, like a, a decade ago. Yeah, <laughs> a long time ago now. <laughs> but I remember actually it was a conference down in Melbourne – and I remember that the brief for the conference was a, a challenging one. They're a great group, this crew that I presented to, but they kind of didn't know what they wanted either from me being there on stage with them, other than they didn't want it to be like every other keynote speaker. They wanted me to, to feel like them. And I, I had a pretty good idea who they were as an organisation and I had some really useful stuff to present to them. But even up until the night beforehand... I didn't know whether to do the piece or not um, because they were a very corporate audience, you know, 50 shades of check, blue, all that kind of stuff. But I just, I got to the point and, uh, yeah, I don't know whether this will mean I'll get less speaking gigs or more speaking <laughs> gigs when they eventually come back, but I just went, you know what, fuck them. This, they need this and and they don't know what they don't need and... Everything that I read about in the brief, I knew that I was ticking off within the, the, the substance of the keynote that I'd put together for them. But it was, I also realised that if I walked off, would it have left any lasting impression on them or taken them to a space or place that they hadn't been prepared for? And so I thought, bugger it, I'll, I'll back this in. And, and I did it and, and I remember not long afterwards like members of their executive being on stage and in tears because it had moved them to that point. And, and that piece amongst others have had that effect on people. And so, yeah, it's a long and rambling answer to your story but why or question but why poetry and why spoken word? I, I probably wanted another way to disarm people's defences and, and in some ways just to express a concept or idea through a different form and uh and i actually did this myself when i trekked kokoda which was always on my bucket list and went over to new guinea and walked the kokoda track with friends and every every afternoon we'd get in and whilst the afternoon rains were on i'd go into my tent and and i'd write poetry um about the trip and it was just a way it was it was such a deeply moving and 
sensory experience that trek it was extraordinary i, I, I remember you talking about it as being the crying oh it's a crying, crying crying tour of new guinea <laughs> yeah. it was for a bunch of us and it was a it was deeply moving very, way more sp- like the physical component of the trek i think in some ways just serves to break you down a little bit to the point of where the emotions kick in but it, it's um i i really found uh doing poetry helped me put the day into some order and so around the campfire every night I'd, I'd recite some poetry and the funny thing was it it started to kick in a few other guys started to have a few cracks at it themselves and it was just a yeah it was it was this really it's a sort of classically un-australian and the most australian thing we could have done was we were talking about these magnificent ragged bloody heroes over on the track and each afternoon just us blokes who had porters and kind of um, tents and, and, and like come from very privileged lives, we'd, uh, we'd sit around a campfire and it was a dry trip. There was no grog. There was none of that. But we just laughed and laughed. But we told stories and, 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 and recited poems and it was bloody wonderful. And, uh, yeah, and I've still got some of those as keepsakes of that trip you know, that I, that I occasionally read back on and they have a real deep sense of meaning for me. So it's something that I, I like I started a WordCraft project over over COVID because it would made no sense to me, <laughs> like a, still doesn't a whole lot, but I started to just write some poetry and put that out to the world too, just as a sense-making process for me. So yeah, it's something I'd li- I, I feel like I'll continue to do because I find it a useful expression, and um, you get to ponder stuff. Like just in one line can be some really extraordinarily deep concepts. For me, and I'm picturing you know this this group of say Aussie men, you know, sitting on top of a mountain or the bottom of a valley, wherever it was, and and gathering around and writing poetry. But it is the the value sometimes of taking the risk of the thing that calls you uh, actually gives permission for others to express that. Oh, yeah. And, and, yeah, some of the guys done some rippers. Like I've, I've still got them on my phone, you know. Like I um, – uh, yeah, I, yeah, I could read one. I actually – Going for yeah, it. I, um, this was one I think I may have put it up on social media, not as a as a poem piece, but as a written piece. But this was a, a day in the middle of the trek where we um, we were coming up to a, um, a really significant part of the track and um, uh, a, a place called. Uh, Brigade Hill where there was a, a tremendous battle that was fought there and I I remember it was a long trek uh, where I found myself alone for a long period of time and so this was what I wrote at the end of, of that day. Um, so, yeah. I'll apologise in advance for the absence of laughs as I read the results from today's word craft. For today was a day like none came before when the diggers they spoke to me deep to my core. With a brutal ascent as we come out of a fogey, a lesson await as the climb would soon show me. As each step took me higher, it stripped a new layer. As the heart and lungs became a secondary player. 
My mind and my spirit were fair in sight of nature and history, a combined force of might. This tracks a professor, its purpose to teach, just setting the classroom as I near the high reach. Suddenly alone, for the first time in a while, I was passing Mission Ridge, no sign of a smile. No porter, no teammates, just me and the track. I asked it some questions and it answered right back. I can't tell you the answers or put into words. It was spoken by the wind and the sound of the birds. And as I thought of the struggle, the fear and the pain, any personal ailments or aches, they started to wane. I cried and I walked and I walked and I cried along this tiny track on a Papuan hillside. I thought of my pop fighting in New Guinea and El Almain and how he bore the scars and carried the pain. And again, this was me just lost in my head, but the mountains not finished, the script only half read. As I rounded a bend and had one final crack, she'd stitch me up proper this famous jungle track. I'd seen it before me on top of the mound as I walked onto the summit onto this spiritual ground. These stakes stood before me, all neat and in rows, and on top of this vista with deep valleys below. The moment it got me, and I don't mind to say, as emotion overcame me and my legs gave way. I sat and I wept for each and every digger. It was a spiritual moment, those stakes were a trigger. I thought it'd be quick, this emotional trial, but the tears kept coming for quite a long while. In just a simple few minutes, they'll stay with me for life and I'll share the story with my kids and my wife and I'll tell the story and try and recreate the scene, but it won't make much sense for those who haven't seen that jungle, those mountains and all of the beauty. They cover terror and sacrifice and all of the cruelty it's there but dominant until you choose to listen and when it shows up and your eyes start to glisten we're lucky bastards aren't we to visit this place to find meaning and challenge in the time and the space and it's not lost on me a connection on that day of days and anniversary on the sixth deeply moving in many ways to think back in time it'll send down my spine a chill as I felt the spirits alive on the top of Brigade Hill. And, yeah, it was a big day mm-hmm. that day on the track and we were lucky enough that the 6th was the anniversary of Brigade Hill, this extraordinary fight between the Australian and the Japanese and you have zero comprehension of what that topography and, and um, environment is like until you're there. And it's hard enough just to walk it with all the support that we had alone, fight a battle in it and be vastly undergunned and, and, and stuff. And what the Australians done up there was just extraordinary and that piece was just my way of putting into words what was an extraordinary day and and just an extraordinary feeling and, and emotional uh, interaction with the day. So, so yeah, that... that that was done in my tent um, <laughs> across the course of about an hour or so after we trekked and it just kind of came through me, you know. So. And, and important, I mean, in, yeah, you, you described the emotion in that day in, in what you saw in, in, I can almost, and I can't, like not being there, but that, that sense of the jungle and the overwhelm of it um, 
and obviously can hear in your voice and see the emotion is still sitting there, mm. you know, the, the power and the impact of it. I guess what comes to mind with some of that because we, you know, we even touched on talking about your pop, part of that kind of ancestry and what we've come from and how we're here and the impact of what the, the Aussies did in that territory and how it might have shaped our history if it was different. When you hear, hear the word legacy, what does that mean to you? I don't know. Like I, I th- it's that's a really big question because um, I don't know. There's part of my brain that goes to the work side of it and go, "What does legacy look for like for a team or an organisation or a leader?" Or then my head goes to, "What does it look like for me?" Um, in the simple terms of what does it look like for me is like I'd, I'd like to be a person that's uh, I have the same dreams and wants that most people want and that's to be valued and to be of value for people in the world and to, um, you know, be one of those people that, that people talk about in in terms, not, not because they're talking about you but it's because of who you've become, that you that people speak fondly of the the impact that you may have had on them and that comes through being present enough and assured enough of yourself. I'm pretty sure that people don't get spoke about in those terms if they've just, if it's all about them. Um, So in some ways the way to have a legacy is to to be of great value. Um, um, And I guess in some ways that translates to the first part of it is, well, what does a legacy look like for a team or an organisation? or a leader it's to be of great value so maybe that will do for we could probably talk about that for a few other hours on what legacy means yeah Yeah, no it's a big question for sure and I guess it's just some of the things that come to mind when you describe that sense of perspective and understanding and you know I know what that trip means and you know what lessons continue on you know back in the work and back in as we talked about COVID-19 and a sense of uncertainty. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. You are probably the person who knows where that came from the most and what that has meant and, and the evolution of that through uh, my work and, and the book and, uh, you know, the, the 99 episodes prior to this one. But if I were to ask you what does it mean to live a standout life, what comes to mind it's funny you know like i i um i deliberately in in the lead up to this uh podcast made myself not prep for it because i like i I normally would like if i got asked onto someone's podcast i'd go right what's their podcast about and who are they serving and how could i be a value in that and i went no i won't do that at all and so I've just realised as you're asking that question is that it's such a big, broad question that you tend to ask people at the end of your interviews and I should have had a really good cracking response <laughs> to that. I should have well prepped. And so my, I, I think in some ways and I wanted to let this combo be like a river and it just goes wherever it goes but I really wish I would have prepped that and just had <laughs> Well, this. it's funny actually. I was on, I think uh, Jen Brown, I was on her Sparta Chicks and she turned the tables and asked me the same question and I went, oh, shit, like what was the best answers I've had? I don't know and I just... <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so yeah, yeah, it's a big I, question. I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I go, what does it take to live a standout life? I, I think, 
I think it it's being a principled human being that observes that there are certain time-honoured customs and patterns in the world that if you if you stick true to them then you can be a really good like it's not like we haven't seen standout people in our lives before so i think that there are things of, of being you know speaking the truth and and being trustworthy and being hardworking and things like that will get you a long way down the path but i also go that i think that those are the characteristics that you can show up with but then it's the commitments that you can make to the people around you that truly make for a standout life is that i that i think that we we give far too much time and credence to our own ego and to our own sense of self and and preferences like i i preferences annoy me um because i i think that they become a a convenient hiding space for people to be in rather than stretch themselves and serve others um like there's stuff i prefer not to do all the time but sometimes it's required of me to live a standout life is to put my own needs second for a greater good and and you know i i think that um you know when it comes to living a standout life it's actually to to not reinvent the wheel but to do the things that we all know that actually serve others so it's to 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 be kind and to be trustworthy and to be um principled even when it bloody hurts and to do the right thing when even what we don't know what the right thing is but to to do it even though it'll, it could cause pain and challenge and it's it's to um if you make commitments see them bloody through you know like i i i go um the single greatest thing that i'm proud of in my life is being married to you and that that started with a promise and it stays with one you know like and i'll break that promise um well one of us will at some point because i think david white the magnificent irish poet says that all relationships will break your heart um, and if you're lucky enough, they'll break it over and over and over. But at some point, um, our relationship will end. Um, and I'd hope it will be when one of us passes away. And I don't see that as being a morbid or, or weird thing. It's called life. And I don't know which one of us exits the building first, but I do know that I want to be, I want to keep my word and be committed to to my my words that i said to you that time ago and so i think yeah like in a really long rambling five minute response to standout life i think that a standout life is is sticking to some old school principles is a really good way to live a standout life i uh i bloody love doing life with you and this has been an extraordinary uh, conversation and I think we have gone down a few rivers. I think people might want you back. Actually. 
I don't know. I, I, I will see what the the lioness pack <laughs> think of me and whether whether I get some um, uh, some feedback from uh, whether I was too cheeky to you or not. Uh, I think you're in so, good seat. I think so you're in I love good. The, I the love fact what that you've done the, here. Yeah. The uh, the swans have been on for a good forty minutes. Uh, I think it's also a testament of yeah. your commitment. So I think I'll be. I'll go pop the kettle on, shall I? Yeah, I'll be. So. <laughs> Thanks. Well.